is uh, really great to be back this evening. Uh, it is a fourth Sunday where we don't have anything else going on. And so that means we can do questions and answers tonight. And so I'm looking forward to getting your questions and seeking a Bible answer for them. And uh, we, we do have a little bit of a technical issue tonight. The usual number is not going to work. So if you'd like to text a question in, I hope that many of you will, because I didn't have any handed in uh, beforehand. Uh, you can text the number 205-974-0057. That's just a temporary number that we're using uh, this, this month only. But it will work. It'll get the questions to the control room back there so they can put them up on the slides so we can look at them and study our Bibles together, seeking these answers to these questions. Uh, so we had a few come in early. So here, here's the first one. How does one destroy God's temple? Is it a physical or spiritual defilement? And I'm grateful for the references there that will help us see what, what they're thinking about here with regard to God's temple. And those are in the New Testament. So we know they're not talking about the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem or the second temple as it is known that was built by Zerubbabel in the post-exilic period when the Jews returned from Babylonian captivity or the temple that Herod elaborated on in Jesus' day. That physical temple no longer stands. We talked about the seven wonders of the ancient world today. A fact checker at lunch told me that there are eight wonders of the ancient world and that I left Andre the Giant out. Um, so even if you want to include Andre, my point still stands because he's gone too. So uh, where was I going with that? The physical temple is gone. <laughs> the physical temple was destroyed in the year A.D. 70 uh, by the Romans due to their reaction to a Jewish revolt. And what we have now is a spiritual temple. And that is discussed in two senses, in the sense of the church as a whole and in the sense of the individual Christian. And both of those are in the book of 1 Corinthians as this reference has it. Now, there are other places where the church is discussed as a temple. But we'll use these references. Uh, I think at the end of Ephesians 2, there's another such reference. There's one in 1 Peter chapter 2 as well. You could count. But here's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you, and he's speaking in the plural here, you Christians at Corinth, you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Okay, so what is he talking about in terms of destruction? Well, first of all, notice that he said God's Spirit dwells in you. And the Holy Spirit is the reference here. And the Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is God. Uh, Godhead is Father, Son, and Spirit. And uh, you can speak of the Spirit as God. Uh, Peter does so in Acts chapter 5. At the beginning of that chapter where the story of Ananias and Sapphira is told. And so if the Spirit dwells in you then God dwells in you. And God dwells in temples. A temple is simply a dwelling place for divinity, for God. So what does it mean to destroy the temple? 
Well, he explains it here. He says, the person who destroys it is the one who will be destroyed. So look at verse 17 again. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. It's a warning to Christians. So he's talking here about self-destruction. I think that's clear in verse 17. It's a self-destruction. And it's not a physical defilement so much as it is a spiritual defilement. Now, we can do things to defile ourselves physically that are sinful, which also have a spiritual defilement to it. But ultimately, it's, it's a spiritual defilement that destroys God's temple. That means you could be relatively happy, you could be going about your own business, but you have no longer put God first in your heart, and you are living in sin and refusing to repent and refusing to confess your sin, and that is a spiritual destruction within that is ruining you as God's temple. Another way of putting this is that God will no longer dwell in you. His presence is no longer with you unless you repent or confess. And similar comments are made at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul is speaking individually. Now, the context here is fornication. In verse 18, he says, flee fornication, sexual immorality. Uh, Corinth, in Corinth, that was a big problem. And the reason why there's all this talk of temple in, in Corinth is because uh, the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, we'll keep circling back to that, was located there. No, that was in Ephesus, never mind. But Corinth had temples as well. And um, the temple of Aphrodite was in Corinth. And Aphrodite was the goddess of love. And uh, their version of love was, was very different from Christian agape love. It was sensual. Fornication was involved in that. So naturally, fornication was a big problem, sin problem, in the city of Corinth. And so when committing that sin, they were defiling themselves as God's temple, meaning God would no longer be with them. He would no longer dwell with them. And he says in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, there might be some confusion here because he's talking of the body, which sounds physical, and I'm saying sin is a spiritual problem, but God doesn't compartmentalize us the way we do. You know, the body and spirit are one. You sin with your body, it affects your soul. As it goes with the body, so goes the soul. And that's the way he's thinking here as the person entirely. Uh, so hopefully that helps with that question. Okay, next question. What does Paul mean by do not quench the spirit in 1 Thessalonians 5.19? Uh, you can go there. I think it would be helpful to turn over there and get the context because part of the solution to this is in the context. It's the end of the first letter to the Thessalonians. There's a whole series of imperatives here. Uh, it starts really with verse 12, where they're told to esteem the elders. And uh, he's admonishing the idol, and he's telling them to be patient, and he's telling them to be thankful always and to pray without ceasing. And then in verse 19, he says, do not quench the spirit. Now, in the original Greek text, we don't know whether to make that a capital S or a lowercase s. My translation has capital S as in the Holy Spirit, and I'm okay with that. I think that's the right translation. And uh, the meaning here 
could be a couple of things. Uh, Get the context here. Verse 20, he goes on to say, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Why does he say right after the instruction, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Well, one reason could be that miraculous gifts in the first century were also called spiritual gifts, and they were said to be distributed by the Holy Spirit. First uh, Corinthians 12, 12 and following. And so uh, prophecy, of course, was one of those spiritual gifts. And uh, he could be saying here, do not turn away a so-called prophet. If someone comes into town and claims to have the gift of prophecy, remember they did not have the written New Testament at that time, you need to listen with discernment to see if he does in fact have the word of the Lord. Now he goes on to say, test everything, hold fast only to what is good. Meaning you need to compare what that person is saying with the word of God that has been confirmed among you There was another spiritual gift, discerning of spirits, which was the miraculous power to tell whether or not one was a false teacher. And so if they had someone with that gift in in their congregation at Thessalonica, that person would be very useful in this context. Uh, So number one, the meaning could be, do not despise prophecies, listen to them. You could be quenching the spirit. One. Christian symbol for the Holy Spirit was the flame or fire. So that's why the verb quench is used here. Uh, It's interesting, there's a connection to Paul's instructions to Timothy, who had a spiritual gift he seemed reluctant to use in 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 14. He says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Uh, So maybe Timothy had a spiritual gift that he was neglecting. And Paul's saying, don't don't be timid about it. In the next letter, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, seems to indicate that he had a spirit of fear or timidity. He was reluctant to use his gifts. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Uh, Use the gifts that you've been given. Uh, I think somewhere around there. Yeah, verse 6, he says, This reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is given to you through the laying on of my hands. Paul was an apostle. He could pass spiritual gifts on to Timothy with the laying on of his hands. Fan that into flame. That's kind of the same thing as do not quench the spirit. So I have a tendency to believe, I'm inclined to believe, that 1 Thessalonians 5.19 is about not quenching a miraculous gift, and that would apply only to the first century time when miraculous gifts were needed and used. However, we know from 1 Corinthians 2 and uh, other passages of Scripture that the Word of God that we have today is the result of the Holy Spirit-inspired prophecies, the revelation, and uh, by neglecting the preaching of this Word, you are, in essence, quenching the Spirit. So that's an application that can be made today. But I believe in the context, if you want to know technically what he's talking about, I believe the context there is miraculous power. Okay, in Psalm chapter 40, verse 6, David says, God does not require burnt offerings and sin offerings. Does this contradict the law of Moses? That's a good question. Let's turn over to Psalm 40. 
Let's read the, the verse here. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offering, you have not required. And I'll go on and read verses 7 and 8. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written to me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So pay attention to the context. Verse 8, he's talking about doing the will of God. And, and the law of God is written in his heart. So his intention here is not to contradict the law of Moses, but to have it written on his very heart. So I think if we interpret this to mean that David is moving on from the law of Moses, we've got it wrong. I think it's helpful to look at David's words using this language in other places. So let's go over to a, more, a better known psalm, Psalm 51, where he's praying for forgiveness because of his sin with Bathsheba. And uh, notice what he says and how similar it is to Psalm 40 in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Does David mean that God no longer wanted animal sacrifices? Look at the life of David. You see that's not true. Uh, is it 2 Samuel 24 where he purchases uh, the wood from a threshold and the oxen of a man named Arana so that he could make a sacrifice? David sacrificed many burnt offerings, sin offerings following the law of Moses. A better way of looking at this is that he's saying... God doesn't delight merely in the external actions of burning sacrifices when the heart is not accompanying it. He's talking here in Psalm 51, I think it's obvious, about a sacrifice without a broken spirit, a sin offering without a contrite heart. Do you think under the law of Moses that some people thought that if they just purchased the lamb or brought the oxen to the priest, and gave it over and let the priest do all the work and sacrificing it, that he thought, okay, you know, I'm good for another year. We know that kind of corruption existed in those days. And David is saying what God wants is the heart. And when you get the heart right, the rest of it will come along. That's the meaning here. And there are other passages that are very similar to this. If you look with me at Amos chapter 5, I believe. Notice what he says in Amos 5, verse 21. This is God speaking through the prophet. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What is he saying there? 
I don't just want external religion without the heart. In fact, he's saying, your worship's making me sick. I despise your worship. Are they listing things here in Amos that are in the law of Moses? Yeah, feasts, solemn assemblies, burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, uh, the songs, even the melody of the harps. This is not a passage against instrumental music and worship. In the Old Testament, that was regulated and allowed and authorized. It's not authorized in the New Testament. It's authorized in the Old Testament. The problem here is not with the external actions, but with the heart that wasn't engaged in it. God has the same problem with somebody that comes and gives hollow worship here in the church. is Sitting on the pew singing with hatred in their heart or giving money with no desire to further the kingdom of God. Uh, praying, bowing their head in prayer, but their mind is not engaged. God wants us to worship in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. And that's what Psalm 40 is all about. What else do we have? Since angels can be cast out of heaven, does the Bible tell us what kind of sins exist in heaven? The Bible is not specific. There, if, you, if you concede that the devil was an angel, which we have to deduce that, uh, then you could uh, maybe point to some passages uh, such as First um, Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 6, which says that the elder must not be a recent convert, that he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That seems to suggest that the sin the devil committed was conceit, or pride, and maybe that suggests that his sin was to rebel against God and want to usurp God's power, or at least be equal to God. Maybe he was an archangel like Michael. Maybe he was very powerful, and he wanted to seduce the world into making him a God, equal to or greater than the true and living God. But as a created being, he could not overpower God and was cast down. Um, all of that is by deduction. I think it's a solid deduction, but there's no passage that tells us exactly what the angels did when they sinned. Second Peter 2, 4 and Jude talk about angels who sinned that were cast down. Uh, they're cast into hell and in uh, chains, gloomy chains of darkness until the day of judgment. Well, it, it doesn't say exactly what they did, but think by a process of elimination, what sins are possible in heaven? What could possibly tempt anybody in heaven? You're, you're not subjected to the limitations that you are in this world, brought about by your physical body or by your earthly means. You're not tempted to steal. You're not tempted to sexual immorality. You're not tempted to neglect because there, there's nobody to neglect. Everything is provided. So what exactly would you be tempted to do if it's not some lust for God's power? Who would dare do that? Well, maybe if we were in the shoes of an archangel, maybe we could understand it. But I think the devil is so twisted that he is capable of an evil that hopefully none of us is capable of. So I can only guess at what kind of sins exist in heaven Another way of answering that is no sins exist in heaven because if any sin was ever committed, they would be cast out immediately. Look at Revelation 
21, where nothing of the kind is allowed into heaven. Uh, so that's where righteousness dwells, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Do angels watch over us today? Well, there are some, it depends on what you mean by watch over. Um, and y'all know I'm teaching a class on this, right? So I got to have some material for Wednesday nights, but keep your angels questions coming because we never get to the bottom of this subject. Um, if you, so if you mean, are they interested in us? Yes. First uh, Peter chapter one, verses 10 through 12 says that the gospel is a matter of that angels long to look into. And the meaning of that verb is they gaze with outstretched necks, like they're on their tiptoes just trying to see how we respond to the gospel. The parables in Luke 15 tell us that the, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons that need no repentance. The angels rejoice when sinners Repent. We talk about that after the invitation is offered and somebody responds. We, we say that, and I think we say that with justification. There is another sense that may be meant here, and I'm not sure what the person who asked the question means. The sense of guardian angels, that comes up quite a bit. And this is the idea that everybody's assigned a guardian angel, and that uh, angel will watch out for that person and guard that person their whole life. And... Uh, all I can say about that is that, number one, the scriptural proof for that is spotty at best. And number two, if that's true, then a lot of angels deserve to be fired because a lot of bad things happen on earth and a lot of innocent people get hurt. And my question is, that's fine for you to get excited about barely escaping a traffic accident or recovering from a health problem and you want to say that's your guardian angel but what about the little child who gets cancer or a teenager that's killed in an accident by a drunk driver where were their guardian angels we have to be very careful and not destroy somebody's faith with an idea that is fanciful at best. I know people will go to Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, he's talking about little children. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Does he say that in heaven the angels are making sure that nothing will happen to them? That's not what he says. He says, They have friends in high places. Again, this does show angelic interest. They are interested in the little children. They're on the side of the little children. Now, these angels are fearsome and mighty, and uh, we may have to come into contact with them one day. So if you mistreat a child, you've got some pretty bad enemies in heaven. That's the meaning here. Do not neglect children. Do not despise them. There are angels who are on their side. They have friends in, in high places. That's the meaning there. And maybe the person who asks this wasn't even talking about guardian angels, but just in case, we'll do that. Angels. Are angels numbered? Can more exist? I don't believe that more are being created. Uh, they were created, past tense, we are being created. 
uh, there's a difference there. The heavenly host seems to be complete and intact by the time of uh, the six days of creation. In uh, Job 38, Job says that they were present and they saw the creation. And why do I say that? Well, they're immortal. They don't die, so there's no need to create more of them. How many are there? Well, in, uh, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the writer there says that there is an innumerable host in festal gathering. Innumerable tells us we can't number them. Uh, there's a reference in Revelation to a myriad of, upon myriad or uh, 10,000 times 10,000. I think that's symbolic and not meant to be calculated into an exact number. So if you want to get down to the biblical answer, the, the answer is they are not numbered, but there are many of them. Do you think God uses people on earth as angels? No, if they're people, they're people. Um, if, if they're angels, they're angels. Uh, maybe the question is related to Hebrews 13 too, which says, do not neglect to show hospitality for um, by showing hospitality, some have entertained angels unawares. And, and some people interpret that to mean, hey, we could be bumping into angels and not even knowing it. I don't want to go that far with it. That's just me. Um, I, I think that uh, when God needs an angel, he will use them. But uh, he has the church on earth and his word in us that uh, we are his hands and feet now. We are the body of Christ. So times have changed, and this is by God's plan, and I don't believe there's any evidence that uh, the TV show Touched by an Angel, for example, has any scriptural basis. Uh, those moments in scripture where the angels appear are rare even in the scriptures. If you put the time frame in there, you'll see there are hundreds, maybe thousands of years between angelic visitations that just seem more often to us because they're condensed down into this book. But look at uh, it on the historical timeline. You'll see that angelic visitations are very rare. How did the devil turn into a fallen angel? Well, again, if we deduce that this happened, which I think there's sound evidence for that conclusion, then he became a fallen angel the moment he committed sin, uh, whenever he was guilty of that conceit that brought on condemnation, 1 Timothy 3, 6. Whoa, come on, people. What else can I talk about? Somebody give me a question on something besides angels. Um, see if you can come up with something. Uh, Shane, you want to... Okay, uh, let's talk about that. Uh, I believe dinosaurs were created on day six with the other animals. There's no indication that other animals evolved in terms of macroevolution, jumping species, uh, from day six of creation on. That means all the genetic material for dinosaurs was on Earth and represented by day six. So what happened to them? There may be references, by the way, to dinosaurs in Job chapters 40 and 41, uh, the behemoth and the leviathan. Some scholars believe that's a reference to hippos and crocodiles, but that's a bit of a stretch if you read it. I know it's poetry, and we can't be conclusive about it, but I think there's um, enough evidence to show that God created them on day six, 
that they existed maybe into the days of Job, that they were carried through the flood by Noah's Ark, and um, they might have survived that way. But one answer to what happened to the dinosaurs could be that they just couldn't survive the catastrophe of the flood. Um, maybe they were brought over and they just weren't able to repopulate as the others could. The world changed after the flood. Uh, it's very possible that the earth was enveloped in a vaporous canopy. You look at day two of creation and God says, let there be an expanse between the waters. It seems that the world was in liquid form like Neptune. I think Neptune's supposed to be mostly liquid. Uh, maybe the earth was like that. And um, the first thing that God did in dividing through creation is he divided the waters below from the waters above. Looks like a cloud canopy may have enveloped the entire earth. We know it wasn't raining in those days that a mist came up from the earth. Uh, the first rain fell in the days of Noah with the flood. Okay, so that suggests that there could have been tropical conditions all over the planet. And if I understand dinosaurs well, they're reptiles and they need warm climates. They wouldn't do well uh, up in the Arctic Circle. I guess woolly mammoths would be an exception, but are they a dinosaur? I mean, they're mammals, right? And, uh, and we have evidence that they survived a lot longer than the reptiles. There have been fossils of flora and fauna that are tropical found on the North and South Poles. Now, that's really interesting. Uh, that means that it hasn't always been cold up there. How is that possible? Well, it's only possible if the world was very different at some point than it is now. And the only catastrophe that could have produced conditions that created things like poles and the Grand Canyon in such a short period of time and the huge mountain ranges that we have is if the Lord brought waters up from below the surface of the earth and waters down from the sky and covered the whole earth in water in this reboot that happened in Noah's flood. That would be something that would challenge not just dinosaurs, but a number of species that are now extinct. That's a theory. But, uh, you know, a lot of animals have gone extinct because of human activity, because of climate problems. Um, you know, there are all kinds of reasons why dinosaurs may not exist. That's just one thought. What is the difference between disciples and apostles? Well, all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. Whenever you see Jesus selecting his 12 apostles in Luke chapter 6 and the other related passages in the gospel accounts, he prays all night the night before. And then he comes out and he goes to his multitude of disciples and he selects 12 of them from that multitude of disciples that had been following him. There were many people following him, but only 12 were selected to be apostles. The word disciple, by the way, mathetes in Greek, means learner. In the context of the gospel accounts, it's more of a follower or an imitator of Jesus Christ. That's more general than the word apostle or apostolos in Greek, which means one who has been sent. So they were selected for the special role of Jesus sending them out, as in the Great Commission, to all the world to build churches, 
and uh, to make more disciples who were given the instructions to carry out the Great Commission from their localities. So that's the difference between a disciple and an apostle. What did a serpent look like before it was cursed to its stomach? Man, I hate this question. And the reason I hate it is not because it's a bad question. It's because I just am confused about it. You know, I have trouble believing. And I'm not saying that this is, means it didn't happen, but I just have trouble believing that snakes used to have legs. But in the curse, we'll go back and read it in Genesis chapter 3. God does say something to the serpent who was the devil. That's another thing that's tricky about this is this is, just isn't any serpent. This is the devil here. And here's what he says, Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And he goes to the woman, and he goes to the man, and curses them. Did the earth change, and did mankind change from that day forward? Yes. Is it possible that serpents changed from that day forward? Yes. Is it possible that all the snakes in the world had legs and they all dropped off and all their babies were born without legs from that day forward? It's possible. Um, but there's another way to read this. Do we take this literally? You'll notice in um, translations like the ESV, it's set off in lines like poetry. And that's because these are written in parallelism in the Hebrew, which is a form of poetry. Now, you've got to know what you're reading when you're reading the Bible. And poetry is meant to be read figuratively. And we know that not just because of the lines, but because of verse 15, which is the first messianic prophecy we have in the Bible. After saying, you're going to go on your belly, he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Okay, between this serpent and Mother Eve? Let's go on. And between you and between your offspring and her offspring. Well, I think a lot of you would agree, living in Alabama, that there is enmity between us and the snakes. Uh, a lot of people hate snakes. But is that all he's talking about? We go on. He shall, now he's talking about an individual. Her offspring, as we see from the next line, is an individual. He shall bruise your, not just the offspring of the, the serpent, but the serpent himself that he's talking to, this Son of this woman will bruise your, the devil's, head, strike a fatal blow, kill the snake, but you, the devil, shall bruise his heel, a non-fatal blow. Do you read that literally? Does that mean Eve has a baby that steps on this snake's head and gets bit on the heel and recovers? No, this is talking about Jesus Christ. And his death on the cross. And it's a, it's a wonderful, amazing prophecy made thousands of years at the beginning of time about the crucifixion. And it's predicting that the devil will try to take Christ out, but in so doing, he will be his own undoing. And he will be defeated on the cross. 
So I believe that we're reading something figurative. And Robert Alter, in his commentary on uh, Genesis, he says that this could be read figuratively, that as, he, as the snake crawls on his belly, that is the nature of his character. We can get that idiom even in American ideas. You know, we, we understand if we say, you know, you crawl on your belly through the world, that's not a compliment. You know, it's not saying that you're a good person. You're lower than low. What do you mean by that? You're down in the dust. You're dirty. You're filthy. And that could be the meaning. So that's where I lean. If you want to say God created snakes with legs, that sounds like a lizard to me. But I don't know. What are the ministering spirits sent out to serve in Hebrews 1.14? Well, the context of Hebrews chapter 1 is angels and how Jesus is greater than the angels. And that argument is concluded in this final verse of Hebrews chapter 1, saying, what are angels? They're not superior to Christ. They are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are redeemed, those who are saved. And so the ministering spirits are angels. Ministering means serve. Uh, spirit means not material, not visible, but invisible. And the true nature, the true essence of angels is spiritual, although they have appeared in physical form. What is the best way to tell someone the religion they practice isn't biblical? Not being a smart aleck here, but the answer to this is using the Bible. Do not go to them and say, you're wrong. You're wrong. We do it right. You don't do it right. That's a turnoff, and it's not the appropriate way to tell somebody the Word of God. The appropriate way to tell somebody the Word of God is to open the Word of God. And if, if you say, well, will you look at the Bible with me on this subject? Let's just read the Bible, and can we agree that whatever the Bible says, that's what we're going to accept? I think if you can do that with somebody, they will listen to you, and uh, that will be very influential. That's the best way. How should you treat friends who sin? Well, see the answer to the last question. You know, use your Bible. Um, but sometimes they're ready to listen and ready for intervention, and sometimes they aren't. The first thing you need to do is to make sure that their influence, if it's evil, if it's sinful, that it's not rubbing off on you. You have to keep yourself clean. It's kind of like on an airplane, it sounds bad for them to say that in case of a problem, help yourself with the oxygen mask before you assist your children. But that's what the flight attendants say, at least the last time I listened to them. They said, help yourself first and then help the other person because you're no good to the other people if you're gasping for air as well. Well, when it comes to helping friends who sin, you need to be sure that you're not in sin first. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Watch out for your own selves, lest you also be tempted. And uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, bad company corrupts good morals. Watch out for that peer pressure. But secondly... You need to approach them in a gentle spirit. Again, that's Galatians 6 1. And you need to be mature about it. And you have to be patient. They didn't get into that situation overnight. And they're not going to get out of it overnight. Your influence and your example will move them if you're patient with it. 
At the end of the day, though, you can't force anybody to do anything. You have to just be a good example, stand up for what is right, protect your influence, and if they choose not to repent, then you have to let them go their own way. And that's hard sometimes. Is being gay a sin, or is acting on it a sin, or both? Well, we're all tempted, right? Is temptation a sin? Well, Jesus was tempted, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, yet he did not sin. Temptation is a desire to commit sin, but sin is choosing to give in to the temptation. So if you mean by being gay, if you mean same-sex attraction that you decide not to give into, tempted to, tempted to homosexuality, but you refuse to commit homosexuality, that's not a sin because temptation itself is not sin. It's when you are lured and enticed and then you sin, James 1, 14 and 15. But the practice of homosexuality is a sin. Romans chapter 1 is very clear on that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, 10 through 12, very clear on that. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Leviticus 18. Over and over again, the Bible says that the biblical sexual ethics is that sex is for a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. And, um, you know, being tempted is no more a sin than being tempted to commit adultery or being tempted to... Um, commit fornication and saying, no, I'm going to be true to my wife or I'm single and I'm going to be pure. That's, that's the temptation to homosexuality. It's when you give into it that it becomes a sin. Wow. How do you deal with someone who says being gay is something they can't help? Well, I think what we just said is, is part of that discussion. Are you talking about same-sex attraction, temptation? Or are you talking about um, acting on it? There's a lot of temptations that come that we don't want, but you don't have to act on them. Another thing is, I think it's time to do away with this, this is the way God made me argument. First of all, they've been searching for a gay gene, biological connection to this for ages, and they can't find it. And look, if it was there, they would have found it by now. Also, if you look at the stats, people who identify as LGBT is growing astronomically. Among the baby boomer generation, it's something like 1%, 2%. Among uh, Generation X, it's something like 4%. I may have my numbers a little mixed up. Among millennials, it's 10%. Among Generation Z, who are teenagers and above now, it's over 20%. Now, how do you explain that climb? if there's not cultural contamination involved. The culture is influencing people, not biology. And another part of that statistic, and you can check this online, it's well supported, is out of those 20% of Generation Z who identify as LGBT, they identify as the B of that LGBT, bisexual, which is a sin in which you choose one gender or another okay so if you have a choice then it is a choice 
I don't know if that makes sense, but that's the way I've worked it out in my mind. Oh, are these all from the same person? Why did I ask for more questions? Just kidding. We need to talk about these things. They're talking about it in our schools. They're talking about it on our television sets all over the internet and social media. If we don't talk about it in church and talk about God's word, then our young people and, and we are not going to get the truth. Can people that are a part of the LGBTQ plus community go to heaven if they are Christians? Well, how can, what do you mean by being a part of that community and being a Christian? A Christian would not be a part of that community. By that I mean they would not practice homosexuality. Um, if they feel tempted, I go back to my previous answer, that we must fight all kinds of temptations, including that one. Thank you so much for your input tonight. I, I'm glad that we had a, a, a second win there, and we didn't have to end. Some of you may be like, hey, I like getting out at 5.30, but I kind of wanted to answer more questions than that. And you came through, and I really appreciate it. We had some good discussions tonight. I encourage you to continue studying writing down your questions, saving them. We'll have another opportunity a month from now to talk about them. But for now, we want to remind you of the Lord's invitation. It's always open, but this is a convenient time for us to remind you that Jesus died for you and he loves you. And no matter what sin you've committed in the past, you can be added to the Lord's body tonight by obeying the gospel. That is believing and repenting and confessing, of your, confessing Jesus as the Son of God and being baptized in water for the remission of your sins. And as a Christian, if you're struggling in some way and you need prayer, God will restore you tonight if you'll just come and confess your sins and repent of what you've been doing and start walking down the straight road that he set before you. Ron's going to lead us in an invitation song. If you have any need, we ask you to come right now as we stand together and as we sing. <laughs>